Neil Rutherford is a name you might not know, but he will be forever remembered by natives of a small coastal town as the perpetrator of the most hideous mass murder in the history of North Wales. This is Red Rum, stories about the true victims of crime, Linda, Lorna, Alistair and Johnny. Many thanks to our guest writer for their help with this episode. Penmine Mower is a small North Wales coastal town that only has about 3,000 people living in it. The town has a long history of quarrying and in recent years has become a popular place to go on holiday. By the 1970s, quarrying was declining but still important to the town and tourism continued to become increasingly important as holidaymakers came to enjoy the sandy beaches and beautiful coastal walks in the area. In the dry, warm summer months, there was nothing better than a gentle walk along the seashore path or a stroll along the Edwardian period promenade past the static beach huts that dominated the seafront. It wasn't far to head up to Snowdonia National Park either. By this time, the main road through Penmine Mower was becoming clogged with tourist traffic, quarry wagons and lorries going to the ferry port, but it was still just a sleepy holiday destination where nothing much happened from one year to the next. The residents of the town lived their lives quietly and without fuss. Until, that is, everything changed on the 25th of July 1976. Neil Rutherford was not from Penmine Mower, but he'd fallen in love with it and chosen it as his home. He was described as short, stocky and middle-aged, probably the sort of person who just wouldn't be noticed in a crowd. He had a colourful and proud past and by 1976 he was 54 years old and had once been part of the Navy. In 1948, Neil got married and then 11 years later, after the death of his dad, he shifted his life's goals and decided to take over the family shipbuilding company. This didn't last long though and the company dissolved, as did his marriage a few years later. After that, Neil started working at the Red Gables Hotel in Penmine Mower as a gardener and a general handyman. Neil was known locally as the Commander. He was a loner, a quiet man who was rarely seen in company. He did love his gardening though, particularly his ability to grow tomatoes which he gave away to the neighbours and the local pup, the Alexandra. Neil liked a drink. He'd wait until quiet times of the day and then would often pop to his local and have a Guinness, but he always drank alone and rarely talked to anyone or struck up a conversation. And it wasn't only his local he drank in. He was known in most of the pubs in Penman Mower. One landlord described Neil, the commander, as a very fidgety man. Quote, he would never sit down. He used to pace up and down the room and look out of the window. He would just have half a pint of Guinness and then go. He never stayed longer than half an hour. Red Gables was a three-storey hotel that had been converted from a large pre-war mansion five years before. It was set back from the main road and well away from neighbouring houses and had 12 bedrooms for guests. The hotel was run by 59-year-old Lisa Simcox and her 24-year-old daughter Lorna McIntyre. She and her husband Alistair were expecting their first baby. On Friday the 25th of July, the only guest staying at Red Gables was a family friend and ex-merchant seaman, Johnny Green. He was 55 years old and a fine antiques dealer from Texas. Local people didn't really know the McIntyres. They kept themselves to themselves since they'd arrived around five years earlier. Neil had worked for them for 18 months before suddenly leaving. 
We don't know if he was fired or if he just left of his own accord, just that it happened suddenly and without explanation. On that Friday, Neil was in the Mountain View Hotel having a drink and the landlord said that he seemed his normal self. He was on his own and pacing up and down like he normally did. Today, he had a glass of Guinness, but then, unusually, topped it up with a couple of gins. Neil then left Mountain View and walked to Red Gables. He had a pistol in his pocket. It was not his service pistol. This was foreign made and one that he must have obtained separately, possibly with the premeditated intention of what he was about to do at Red Gables. As Neil approached the hotel, Lorna was upstairs in one of the bedrooms, Johnny was in the kitchen area in the basement and Linda and Alistair were in one of the lounges on the first floor next to the reception. Neil walked calmly into Red Gables at the first floor reception. He could hear Linda and Alistair talking in the lounge. He walked through and as he entered the lounge, Linda greeted him. Neil's face was ice cold and expressionless. This was a military operation for him and it would be carried out with military precision. He drew the pistol out of his pocket, raised it and coldly fired one shot with pinpoint accuracy into the body of horrified Linda. Blood spattered as she fell onto the floor, killed instantly. Not a flicker of emotion passed Neil's face. Alistair was horrified but could do nothing as Neil, the commander, raised the pistol for a second time and fired another pinpoint accurate shot, this time severely injuring his victim enough for him to fall to the floor unconscious immediately. And then, Neil heard a noise from the kitchen, walked down the stairs and found Johnny Green, oblivious to what was happening. Neil then raised the pistol again as Johnny Green looked towards him and he fired again. Johnny died instantly. Neil heard screaming coming from one of the bedrooms. He climbed the stairs slowly, step by step, getting ever closer to Lorna, who was cowering in the bedroom. Lorna was petrified as she heard his footsteps approaching, clicking on the wooden floorboards. Neil walked into the room. Slowly but surely, almost robotic, he raised the pistol and fired again. Lorna collapsed on the floor, blood again splattering the walls. Then Neil moved, turned and walked down the stairs to where he had started his killings on the first floor. He then gathered whatever combustible material he could find, piling it high in two separate parts of the building and then he reached into his pocket for the box of matches he had brought with him. He opened the box and drew out a match that he had struck on the side of the box. He lit the first pile carefully, holding the match to some of the paper at the bottom of the pile. It caught a light, and then he went to the second pile close to Linda's body and set that alight. And as it burned, he threw the remaining matches in the box onto the smouldering pile that now burst into life. He waited for it to burn a short while, before then picking up his pistol again, turning the barrel round and pointing it at his face. He pulled the trigger and the bullet accelerated at more than a thousand miles per hour towards his head. Neil slumped down next to Linda Simcox, another lifeless body. But one of the victims wasn't dead. In pain and bleeding profusely but still alive, for now, Alistair McIntyre, Lorna's husband, who had been in the lounge with Linda, regained consciousness, smelling the burning building around him and seeing the two slumped bodies lying in front of him. He pulled his body painfully and slowly towards the door, past the bodies and out onto the front lawn. It was a long way to drag himself across the lawn and to the hedge and then through it onto the road. 
and because the building was set so far back from the road, no one had noticed the fire yet. Gradually, little by little, he pulled himself towards the hedge at the front of the hotel. If he could make it through the hedge to the road, he could probably get help. There was a chance he could make it. His nails, hands and arms were covered in mud and soil from the grass lawn as he tore at it in desperate attempts to pull himself free from the scene of the murders and he finally reached the hedge. He forced his way through, tearing his jumper off in the process. Alistair lay there on the pavement, bleeding to death and a passerby saw him and rushed to help. The time was now 6pm and a local man, Will, was just arriving home from work. The passerby waved frantically at him and Will could now see that next to the waving person, there was a man with blood all over him. Will rushed over to help him, quote, I ran over and took the man's pulse. It was very weak. He had blood all over his stomach and on his nose. I sent for blankets to keep him warm. He didn't say anything to me and then his pulse stopped. The woman who found him said that he had told her he'd been shot. She was in a right state. Then, Will smelled smoke and saw that the hotel was on fire. He told the now gathering neighbours to phone the emergency services and he and some of the neighbours ran through the gardens. Flames were now shooting through the burning roof beams. It was getting dark and raining as the fire service arrived and started to tackle the fire. A doctor had also arrived but there was nothing he could do for Alistair and he pronounced him dead. As the fire services doused the flames and entered the building, they found the two men and two women dead inside the hotel, all had gunshot injuries. Neil was still clutching his pistol. By the time the fire had been put out, there was serious damage to the staircase landing and some front rooms upstairs were also damaged. The bodies of the victims were eventually removed and taken to the mortuary nearby, where all were identified by a son of one of the victims. The next morning, detectives, fire officers and forensic scientists were at the hotel early looking for clues to help them identify exactly what had happened. Several items, including handbags and notebooks, were removed for examination. A crowd of curious villagers gathered at the scene and the police worked, shocked that something as terrible as this could happen in their town. Despite their investigations, the police were at a loss to explain the reason Neil had carried out the mass shooting in this quiet, rural, North Wales seaside holiday town. The only explanation detectives could come up with was that Neil had snapped, shooting the hotel owner, her daughter and son-in-law and their family friend before turning the gun on himself. There has, of course, been much speculation about the reasons for one of Wales' most notorious mass murderers. Neil was a proud ex-service person who in later life had taken the family company into bankruptcy. He went through an unwanted divorce and was working as a gardener and handyman at the hotel. And he'd even lost that job. He may even have thought that his life was on a continuing downward spiral and that this was not the end that he would have wanted for such an otherwise distinguished career. He had no job, no family, no close friends. Having lost everything that was important to him, feeling wronged and being drunk with the extra alcohol he had consumed that day, he may have gone back to the hotel to settle a score or even ask for his job back, but with a pistol in his pocket. Once he had pulled it out of his pocket and fired the first shot into Linda, he had to carry on and deal with all of the others in the hotel. Neil, whose nickname was The Commander, was just that. He'd been the commander of two submarines, used to issuing orders and having them obeyed without question. 
He might have found it difficult to adapt to civilian life where people argue and disagree with the commands, requests and opinions that you give. Neil thought of himself as an expert in his field of gardening whilst he was employed at the hotel. If Linda or one of the others had questioned what he had done and even instructed him to change something or do something he didn't agree with, how would he have reacted? Was this what led to him leaving the hotel or to being sacked, making him angry with a grudge to settle? Maybe he'd also found out some bad news about his own health that just tipped him over the edge, which would explain why he took his own life as well. Of course, it's possible that he was suffering from PTSD from his time in the Navy, although PTSD wasn't really known about in those days. He had seen active service, been in a position of authority that required him to demand that his men sacrifice their own lives, and he had to carry that with him to his grave. And there was a question as to why the fire at Red Gables. Perhaps when he realised what he'd done, and facing the prospect of public humiliation and life prison sentence, this proud and decorated man decided to destroy any evidence through his failed attempt to burn the building down and all the evidence it contained. And there was a question as to why he set the fire at Red Gables. It's theorised that perhaps, when he realised what he'd done and the fact he was facing the prospect of public humiliation and a life prison sentence, the proud and decorated man decided to destroy any evidence by burning the building down and all of the evidence that it contained. That way, perhaps he thought no one would ever know what he'd done and his reputation would remain intact. After the murders, the fire damage to Red Gables was repaired and it was reopened by new owners. But by 2004, business had come to a standstill and it closed its doors for the final time. It lay derelict with the interior destroyed by vandals and thieves and 11 years later was put up for sale for £375,000, but it sold for less than half that figure, £150,000. A grim past can affect a property's marketability and by law, estate agents must be upfront if there's anything in a house's history that can impact on the buyer's enjoyment. A local property expert said that the hotel, quote, looked like a lot of property for the money, which is probably reflective of what has happened there. The hotel was eventually demolished and the site redeveloped into apartments in an attempt to wipe the stain of the mass murder of Penmine Mower from history. As for Neil Rutherford, the commander, he will be remembered as the perpetrator of the most hideous mass murder in the history of North Wales. <laughs>